Hello, folks. This is Rish Outfield, and you're listening to the Rish Outcast. This was not an episode I intended for you to ever listen to. <laughs> I've, saying it that way, I feel like if you're listening to this, that means I'm already dead. I'm leaving you this message to let you know that no matter how the authorities are reporting my death, it was not a suicide. It was not an accident. It was not me jumping on a trampoline naked with a pair of garden shears. So, it is the end of May 2022, and I was putting the finishing touches, well, <laughs> I was just finishing editing the last episode of my presentation of Newfound Fame. And it was long. It was one hour and 39 minutes, and that was before I'd put outtakes in it, before I'd put Creative Commons license in there, and uh, before I had put in the music. And I looked at the second episode, and the second episode was more than 20 minutes shorter than that. And so I had the choice to split it up and make a fourth episode, or have the third episode just be super, super long. I had a, uh, a soda beside my bed, and um, I thought, well, I'm, while I contemplate this question, this, this mini conundrum, I'm going to grab this soda and take a drink, and I grabbed it and fumbled it and knocked it onto myself, and, you know, I could already feel it pouring out of the top. So I grabbed at it and I grabbed at it fast enough and with enough force that it popped the lid completely off and all of the contents just gushed out all over me and all over my bed. And, ah, you know, I, I'm fairly sure none of it got on the computer, but I didn't look. I was so busy just like gathering up soaked sheets and the pillowcases and uh, it soaked all the way through to the, what do you call them, the mattress cover? Is that what you call the bottom thing? I had it all over my shirt, and there was some on my face. And, you know, I wasn't furious or anything like that. These things happen. They've happened a dozen times to me, and they will continue to happen. I would imagine they happen to everyone. But while I was gathering up all of the soaked bedwear, whatever you call that, I thought, okay, well, this decides me. I'm definitely going to split Newfound Fame into four episodes instead of three episodes. And in the final episode, I'll talk about this accident that happened. But what else do I talk about for the episode to be complete instead of just an episode that's only story and no filler? And uh, I have a whole audio clip file to answer that question. I don't um, know. I don't know. I'm just. I don't know. I don't know. Just, Every time you say I don't know, I don't know. This trigger gets pulled. Yep, that. I'm not sure, but what I am going to do is play the rest of the the the, the rest of the story that remains and then I'll come back, and we will find out together what I'm going to talk about. 
14. Before long, the music could indeed be heard coming from the club down the block. It was three floors high, with a line of kids waiting to get in outside. Every time the door opened to let somebody in or out, a pounding bass beat filled the air. A trio of young people talked into cell phones and smoked cigarettes on the corner before the nightclub, and the homeless man seemed unwilling to approach them, let alone go any further. Ernst got out his wallet. What's your name? Mine? I'm Jeff. Ernst gave him a twenty-dollar bill. Jeff, I'm Ernst. I appreciate you walking with me. Jeff took the twenty and put it in his pants pocket. No problem, man. And I appreciate you not trying to hold my hand. Ernst chuckled, but it wasn't that funny. I get you, man, Jeff said. It can be tough being on your own. I understand. Do they serve drinks there? Let me buy you a beer. They don't let you drink on the street here, dude. And they won't let somebody like me go in. Nothing changes. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's how it is. No use complaining. The homeless man turned back the way they'd come, giving a wave. Take care, mister. And he walked across the street, not waiting for the light. The brown depths monster was standing by the curb, and Jeff went past him without any notice. Didn't walk exactly where it stood, though. Nobody else waiting to get into the hotel seemed to be under thirty, but their outfits ranged from skirts and suit jackets to ripped jeans and a t-shirt, so Ernst didn't feel he was under or over-dressed. He didn't have much cash on him, but he stood in the line and eventually went inside the club. A Samoan bouncer, an unusual someone actually bigger than he was, patted him down, but didn't check his ID. You get a lot of grandfathers in here, he asked. No, laughed the man, and even though it wasn't all that clever, he was still laughing when Ernst went into the bar. There were tons of flashing lights, lots of neon, and several comfortable-looking couches inside. The bar was a separate section than the dance club, which had three floors of flailing kids and three different types of horrible music blaring. It would be nice if the loud music would keep the creature at bay, but it didn't seem daunted by anything, except the weirdness of its victims not being alone. According to helpful signs, the top floor was playing hip-hop, the middle floor techno, and the bottom floor was supposedly dance music, which actually seemed to have lyrics and a chorus, if you could hear it under the throbbing, hammer-like beat. It was the lesser evil, and Ernst stayed there at first. Thump, thump, thump. The music may have been terrible, but it was keeping him alive. Plus, the kids seemed to enjoy writhing to it and jumping around like Mexican beans. In the bar area, there appeared to be few choices other than beer and really sissy drinks, but Ernst ordered a Coors Light and took it back to one of the numerous couches to drink it. A pretty girl watched him take a sip, then went off to order her own overpriced beverage. He wished her luck. His drink was so diluted and watery, 
he'd have to down twelve of them to feel any effects. His old bones complained when he sat down, and he could feel the dried sweat on the back of his shirt bunching the material. He didn't own a cell phone, and had lost his walkie-talkie at some point during the day. But he didn't care. There was something in his back pocket, and he pulled it out to look at it in the neon from the bar. It was a paycheck, the one Alonzo Moss had given him. Poor Moss. It was terrible what had happened to him. But then, the businessman could have said something about the curse when he drove down to the house that first day, trying to recruit him on this nasty little adventure. But would Ernst have believed him? That seemed unlikely. Would he have been tempted, by promises of fame and his own fans, to come out west, even if Moss had shown him evidence that there was a monster there, knocking off people it blamed for its... its interrupted slumber? Still, it was sad, the way Moss had died. Was he still lying there, his head on the concrete, his frightened eyes staring blankly? Did security regularly check the stairwells? If someone had found the body, would Ernst be a suspect? Maybe the suspect? The more he thought about it, the more probable it seemed. Were there cameras in the stairwell? By the doors? In the parking structure? If so, what would they show? It would look like they were running from something, even if that thing couldn't be seen. Moss and Ernst were together when they left, so Ernst would be implicated, right? But he hadn't attacked Moss, hadn't even been on the same level as him. Surely that would be clear on the video. Uh-huh, he muttered. No matter. Ernst would deal with that potential disaster if he survived the night. The club was open till six. He could put up with the loud music and vapid clientele until then. A Katy Perry song began playing. Not that Ernst knew her from Perry Como, and the crowd thinned as some of the dancers took a break or went to buy drinks. As the kids parted, the creature showed itself standing there underneath flashing white lights, still dripping phantom sludge from its emaciated body. Ernst downed the rest of his diluted drink in one gulp. He needed to use the restroom again, but when he'd approached it, he hadn't dared go inside. There was a line at the door to the women's restroom, of course, but only one guy seemed to go into the men's restroom at a time. What if he picked the wrong moment to go in there and found himself all alone, just long enough to meet an untidy end? Like he had feared at the convention, he could follow some boy into the restroom only to have him enter a toilet stall, and that might, technically, mean Ernst was alone and vulnerable. Or the person he followed could just turn around and leave before Ernst was even done at the urinal, and then what could he do? So Ernst sat there, needing to use the facilities, but too afraid to do so, as people laughed and danced and spoke way too loudly all around him. An hour passed. Ernst found himself yawning, despite his fears. Young people sat down in the couches near him, drank and chatted and looked at their phones. Then they'd get up and go dancing, or step outside for a smoke, 
or suggest their party head somewhere else. But Ernst still sat there, in the increasingly comfortable sofa, not sure what his options were. Other than stay put, of course. It was one girl's birthday, and she asked Ernst to take a photograph of their group, which he was more than happy to do. His knees popped as he rose, and his balance was off, though he hadn't dared drink more than the single beer. The birthday gal made no judgment, only put a rosy smile onto her now 23-year-old face. Ernst smiled, too. But the creature was standing against the wall in the background, its crimson eyes visible in the phone's viewscreen, and right there in the picture he took. I'm not sure it's very good, he said. Will you look? She did, and said it was great, and thanked him before running out onto the dance floor to catch her favorite Demi Lovato song, which had been requested for her. Suddenly, Ernst realized that, even though he was in a public place, crawling with fresh-faced bar patrons, none of them were nearby. The couches beside him were all empty, at least for the moment. The brown depths monster moved his way. Ernst stood up again, feeling the pressure in his bladder increase, and was pretty sure he'd die with his pants wet. The monster closed in, making a beeline in lurching steps. Its face was little more than a skull, the toothy expression now, beyond doubt, a grin. But the creature stopped, four feet away, as a club-goer approached. He was a gangly, cowboy-looking dude, though this was decidedly not a cowboy establishment, and he tipped his head at Ernst. Ernst gave him a nod back. The dude took that as an invitation, which was a good thing, and came walking right over. Hey! Hey. Ernst saw the monster waiting, deliberating, and finally take a step back, standing sentinel again from beside a table littered with margarita glasses and napkins. The cowboy smiled at Ernst. I saw you today, at the con. Ernst smiled back, and believe me, it was genuine. You went to my interview? No, but I walked past you when I was getting my picture taken with Linda Blair. The cowboy sat down next to Ernst on the couch. Mind if I sit? Absolutely not, Ernst said, and he hoped he didn't sound too desperate or too grateful. You in movies, then? One, Ernst said. A long time ago. Me too. You know child actors, right? I was one, as a kid. The cowboy put up his hands in a no-bullshit gesture. I did a bunch of commercials, a couple of straight-to-video things, paid good, had some good times. I once got high with Dakota Fanning. Ernst didn't know who that was, but he got up and asked the guy what he was drinking. I bet you've got some stories, he said handing the cowboy a Budweiser. Oh, sure. Tons. Ernst glanced over at the monster, which had made itself at home right against the wall where two girls were sloppily kissing each other. He turned away. If you're in a mood for telling them, I'm in a mood for buying drinks. 
Well, this seemed a pretty sweet deal to the cowboy, who began by telling the story of how he worked two days on Independence Day out on the salt flats, and how disappointed he was when he went to the movie and couldn't see himself. Then he told the tale of hanging out and getting wasted with the cast of Everwood. The ex-child actor said he had a hundred such tall tales, and Ernst was of a mind to hear them all. Fifteen. Interior, cabin, dawn. Lizzie opens her eyes. The light outside the window is gray, but there's definitely light. Did I fall asleep? Somehow you did. Is it still out there? For a while there, I thought it went away, but I got up for a drink of water and there it was in the doorway. I don't even know how it got in the house. What did you do? Me? Nothing. I just stayed thirsty. Where is it now? I don't know. It was here before, and I thought it would come for us once you fell asleep. But it didn't. The sun is now beginning to show up on the horizon. The couple watches it rise. Lizzie? Yes, Brad? I've got something to say. I was... I was planning on proposing this weekend, if the moment was right. I know. I saw the ring. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. This has been the worst weekend of my life. But... But? I guess it could have been worse. We're still alive. He smiles wanly. Yeah, we are, aren't we? We'll always be watching over our shoulders, though. Never sure we're truly safe. Brad opens his mouth to argue. But he can't. Ernst spent close to $40 on beers with his new friend and only found himself dozing off a single time around 3 a.m. when the cowboy told the same story he'd already told about being offered crack by another child actor's parents. He asked the guy to accompany him to the restroom under the guise of being so wrapped up in the story and was able to relieve himself in comfort as the cowboy rambled on from the urinal to the sink. The club's population thinned out considerably, and soon... It was just them and a couple of passed-out teens who'd boasted about getting in with fake IDs and the two bartenders in the room. It occurred to Ernst, after what might have been hours, that he didn't even know the guy's name. Larby, said the cowboy. Honest to God, that's my first name. Well, Larby, it sure was nice hanging around with you tonight. He shook the young man's hand. Yeah, well, you seemed like you needed it. Were you tripping or something? Beg pardon? You seemed to be freaking out when I first saw you. Figured I'd sit with you while you came down. Ernst had never used hard drugs, and this seemed ironic after the stories the cowboy had told. Well, 
I do appreciate it. You all right now? Larby asked. I... Ernst glanced around the room. Even the passed-out kids had left. Only one bartender was left behind the bar, and he was doing something with his phone. What time is it? Larby didn't check his phone. Well, they haven't kicked us out yet, so I guess it's before six. Ernst did not see the brown depths monster. He turned around in a circle, but the stalker was not there. When had it gone away? Why had it gone away? Was it possible the sun had come up back on the east coast and it had disappeared then? Let's go outside. Get some fresh air, Ernst suggested. Okay, but can I say something first? Surely. I'm, uh, not gay, said the cowboy. Despite that story I told before, Ernst surprised himself by laughing. Maybe that's what his desperation had seemed like to the guy, but he had been polite enough not to let that bother him. Well, I won't hold that against you, Mr. Lobby. They went out the main doors into the gray light of pre-dawn. Toward the mountain range on the east, the sky was pink. Nobody else was around, except for one bored-looking bouncer in the lobby. You going to the con again, Ernst? What? It sounded as though the cowboy were asking if he needed to use the can again. You going back to the convention today? Oh, that con. No, I'd say one day was enough for me. Sorry. No worries. Just thought I'd get an autograph later. If you want to give me your address, I'll send you one, Ernst said. But he didn't have any of those pictures of himself in the monster costume, and he didn't really ever want to look at them again. Not if he could help it. Sounds good, man. It was pretty cool out now. Almost cold. The cowboy rubbed his arms in recognition of this. Well, I got a bail. It was good swapping stories, man. Yep, Ernst said, though he had told the tale of picking up the director's garbage, and that had been about it. In the distance, the sun was just about to rise above the mountain peaks. I'll tell you something, Mr. Larby. You ought to put some of those stories of yours in a book or something. You think? You think somebody would buy it? I used to have a blog, but nobody read it. At least they didn't ever bother to comment on it. Ernst was stalling, of course. But he told the man there had to be people out there, just like him, who would thrill to child actor stories of both the good times and the bad ones. Okay, maybe I will, Larby said. So, I gotta go. You're sure? Yeah. The cowboy seemed a little uncomfortable now. Um, you... You take care. Ernst nodded. The sun was peeking out, just a sliver, and Ernst wasn't sure if he was out of the woods yet. Finally, he said, You too. And the cowboy gave him a hug and a quick peck on the cheek. 
Then he spun on his boots and walked westward down the sidewalk. Ernst shook his head. That kid had probably saved his life. Fifty bucks for bad beer and a bunch of boring stories wasn't too high a price to pay. He turned the other way and started walking back toward the Hyatt, which was only five or six blocks away. It was hard to be walking down the street alone. Ernst kept looking around him, kept eyeing bushes and trees and alleyways with suspicion, almost paranoia. But it was daytime now, and the monster was gone. He made it back to the hotel room all right. He had survived the curse of the brown depths. Sixteen. Exterior, brown swamp, night. The disgusting brown water sits still and undisturbed. The reflection of the sun can be seen on its surface. But then, bubbles rise. Once again, something stirs down in the depths. Fade to black. The police did indeed come by the room that day. Ernst had gone to sleep, but had kept waking up. Afraid to open his eyes, sure the revolting creature would be beside the bed, waiting for him. But it wasn't. And when the police knocked on his door, he was nervous to open it, and nervous when he saw the young officer there. But the cop told him the bad news, asked him if he knew Mr. Moss was dead, and told him he had broken his ankle and neck, falling down some stairs at the convention center. It was bad news, but seemed to be one of those freak accidents that sometimes happen. It was his sad duty to report. They let Ernst fly back to South Carolina the next morning, some poor teenaged intern driving him back to the airport, circles under her eyes from being run ragged over the last three days. Ernst had earned some circles himself, and he vowed he would never go to a convention again. Not here. Not anywhere. He wouldn't mind being left alone now, for however many years he had left. Of course, the internet being what it is, word got out that the curse of the brown depths had struck again and an industrious convention attendee uploaded the panel featuring Ernest Tillerman and the unfortunate Alonzo Moss to YouTube. Word spread that the moderator of that little panel, frankly boring and hard to hear, had died mysteriously that very day, and it got thousands of hits. Fans linked to the previous stories, and even more people learned about the curse. Letters would start arriving soon. Some made out to Ernst, and a lot more made out to Ernest, and one or two made out to the Brown Depths Monster. Production companies wondered if he might like to be in their own low-budget horror films, sometimes playing the grandfather or the mayor or doorman, but usually wanting him as a villain, a zombie, once the Frankenstein monster. Booking agents sent letters asking if he'd be interested in doing another convention, one in New York, one in Hollywood, one in Japan where the real money could be made. 
Scores of people now knew who he was. And soon it might balloon into tens of thousands, maybe a million. Ernst stopped reading the fan mail altogether and asked the post office to give him a separate P.O. box for anything addressed to Ernest with only one E. So many Netflix users requested the Blu-ray copy of the film that the service actually made it available for streaming. Some shrugged it off, rightly, as another cookie-cutter, uninspired slasher movie from the 80s. But some viewers became new fans. More folks decided to make the trek to South Carolina, to the filming location, to look around, take pictures, try to get to the bottom of the mystery, to at least see what they could find. And there was something out there to be found. No question. The End Okay, so... There you go. For sure this time. Newfound Fame. We've talked about the title already. I was looking today at the original file when I started writing the story. And that file was actually called Newfound Celebrity, which is even worse, I think, of a title than Newfound Fame is. But who can say? As I've said before, I'm aware that the title doesn't lend itself 100% to a horror story. I wanted to say horror movie, because it... it uh, but that's the title I chose to go with. And I guess, you know, you ch choose to live and die on that particular hill. And... Oh, well. I mean, it's out there now. Uh, let me know what you think of the title. Was it apt? Is it a bad title? Am I being too hard on it? I hope that you enjoyed the story. I hope that you liked the character and that you liked the premise and that the ending didn't leave you cold. As I said, and I'm about to say again, this was much more of a screenplay idea in my mind, a, a movie script than a book. And... Uh, had I written it as a screenplay, uh, maybe it would be better, maybe it would be worse, but you would definitely not have heard it because I write those screenplays and then they go into essentially the circular file. The most recent screenplay uh, was a story I wrote called The Eighth Day, as in, you know, God created the earth in seven days. And it is a story that I really liked. I intended to write it as a screenplay uh, and had been kicking it around for a couple of years and uh, I sent it to my buddy Ian who had always been really, really supportive of my writing, my script writing and he's like hey, thanks for sending that to me. I don't know if he ever even read it. I don't know. But I was left with this feeling of well, what was it all for Basil? Once I, I sent that to him because I couldn't do anything with it. I couldn't run it on the Dune Steve. I couldn't self-publish it on Amazon. I couldn't do a Rich Outcast about it. And uh, I have thought about sitting down and doing a prose version of it. And I've never managed to motivate myself to do it. It would take 
several hours, you know, I could probably set myself a goal of two weeks, you know, I'm going to do it in two weeks, especially once in I'm in the summertime when I'm writing a lot more. But is it really worth it? I don't know. I'm just, I guess I could put out a couple of episodes of the outcast with it on there, but that's so much work. And I just, just like this, like newfound fame, the, the eighth day would work better as a movie. What are you going to do? I don't know. I'm just confused. I talked recently when I was doing the daily podcast in January and February of 2022. I talked about that movie that I had seen. I think it was a Blumhouse production called Truth or Dare, where there was a cursed game of Truth or Dare where you had to tell the truth. I think it would just force you to tell the truth. You couldn't lie. And when somebody dared you to do something, you had to do it or you would die. It was a very good premise and the first half of the movie was excellent. One of those where I sat up and thought, wow, wow, this is great. They have totally taken this premise as far as it can go. This is great. The, the, the idea, the reason I'm mentioning it is, is because of it follows that horror movie that really, well, it lit my imagination on fire enough that I wrote Newfound Fame. And then Truth or Dare had a very similar quality to it in that in order to prolong your life, you could bring new people into the game into the truth or dare game and then suddenly let's say you brought five more people to play it with you now that means there are five more turns each round or or you know five more turns before it comes back around to you and you're forced to tell the truth or you're forced to do a dare the the character that introduces lucy hale and her friends to this game is looked at as, as a villain and as a coward because he is willing to put other lives in danger to save his own. And I, I, I get that. It's not a noble quality to put other people's lives in danger to save yourself. But Micah Monroe's character, the, the, the girl that played the lead in It Follows, she is our protagonist and she is a sympathetic character. And basically, she hooks up with this guy, then discovers that she has this curse put upon her, that a supernatural being is coming after her, and it will kill her unless she sleeps with someone else. And that person becomes the target of the supernatural being. She struggles with this a little bit because she's not a terrible person. And I remember when I saw it, finding it very, very interesting, the situation that she was in, the moral question that is raised. Um, obviously, she is an attractive person, and that's good. And she's a young woman, and that's more good, equally good. It is going to be easier for an attractive young woman to seduce strangers than it would be for somebody that's not those two things. And you wrestle with it. 
because, you know, for most of us, sex is a really intimate thing that you don't share with a lot of people and it's special. And, and, and you know, a lot of people only hook up with somebody that they have profound feelings for. And so how do you put somebody in the position where their life is in danger, where they become cursed, where they essentially become damned after doing this with you? By the end of the movie, she has become a little bit more resigned to her fate and has discovered that being a, a, an attractive young blonde girl, really terrible guys would sleep with her. And I guess there's a power in that. Maybe there's a, uh, a feminist angle to that as well. You know, take back the night kind of thing. Um, it's an interesting perspective. And I, I know that they talked for years about making a It Follows 2. And it's been enough time now that I feel like it would have happened if it was going to happen. Horror movies tend to sequelize faster than almost any other genre. We could be on It Follows 5 by now if they had wanted to. Rich Outfield here, and uh, it's ironic. No, it's not ironic. It's only just that I tacked on this fourth episode because now we're in June. So I recorded the first in March, the second in April, the third in May, and the fourth in June. Like I had intended to do that or something. How much do I like you, my listeners, so much that I watched It Follows again last night so that I would have something to say about it. And now I'm driving up to the cabin and undoubtedly I will regret having watched a scary movie the night before. At least I didn't watch it at the cabin. I'm trying to remember what movie it was that I brought with me, probably from Netflix, and I started watching it, and I thought, you know, let's turn this off, maybe continue it once the sun comes up. Because as I've mentioned many times, my imagination, once it gets going, it's hard to corral it. It's hard to put it back and say, hey, just sit still. I'll talk to you tomorrow. So I had not seen It Follows since 2015, I suppose. That's not that long ago. But I had forgotten enough of it that I kept being reminded of things that were about to happen. And there was a whole section of the film where I was like, oh, that was this movie. In the, was it the last episode? I talked about remembering her being in a parking garage and she looks out and this thing is walking toward her. It, it, it's a very, very smart convention that they invent in this movie that the presence, whatever it is, can look like something else every time that it shows up. And so I, I feel like they 
go out of their way to switch it up every single time. There are a couple of actors that they have portray the thing that are are terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And then there are a couple others that are less so, that are more just like, you know, it's just a person. They're always silent, which is scary. A silent killer is much scarier than a killer that is very noisy, that has witty banter. And they have the person walk slowly and deliberately not like a zombie but like like a sleepwalker like a i suppose like michael myers in the 1978 halloween and while i was watching it last night there were a couple of moments where i was just like oh jeez the film was by a as as far as i know a first time filmmaker or a very unknown filmmaker and there are moments when it feels just like an an independent film a student film you know something made with absolutely no budget but i saw in the credits that the makeup effects were done by robert kurtzman so clearly they had some money but most of the film looks shot on the cheap and i have no idea when it takes place because They don't have cell phones. And when they're watching television, it's never a flat screen TV. It's always an old tube television. A lot of times they're watching something in black and white. You never see, well, you rarely see any new cars, anything fancy. The only bit of technology that I noticed was some sort of digital book reader, like a Nook or a Kindle, but it was shaped like a makeup compact. And it was so strange when it came up on the screen that I was like, what the hell is that? I feel like they were trying for a retro feel to it, trying for a timelessness to it. I didn't catch any pop culture references, no mentions of who is president or what decade it is, what people are listening to on the radio, what, like I said, when they're watching TV, it looks like stuff from the 50s. And all of these things were interesting. There's not a single face that I recognized in the whole movie, as far as acting goes. And so much in the way that the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre has this visceral, uh, grimy, dirty, sleaziness to it because of the way it was filmed, where it was filmed, how it was filmed. This has a much more like late 1970s feel to it as well. And there's a lot of dialogue. All the characters seem to be teenagers, but they can drive. They're probably college age. At one point, the main character goes to school and it looks like a community college. I, I have no idea what it was. It, it, it was just unusual. And, and all of these things are either necessitated by where they shot it, which was Detroit, or were choices that they made. 
it, it's a very unpleasant film. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. Um, only for certain people that like a certain kind of horror. Um, the there's a, a a choice that the filmmaker made in the kinds of people that he had play the creature, the presence, the spirit, the STD, whatever you want to call it. The very first time that we see it, it's a naked woman or girl, uh, but it's the absolute opposite of titillating, of sexy. Later on, there's a girl in like torn up clothes and one of her breasts is hanging out. And the entire time that she's walking toward our heroine, toward her potential victim, uh, she's urinating down onto the, the ground and just like a copious amount, just like leaving a river. And I felt like, gosh, there's something about that as well. That they, they, they're trying to gross us out. You know, STD, it's a, it's a sexually transmitted disease. It's a, a genitally communicable disorder. And I think that they're trying to remind us of that. There, there's a moment where one of the victims is killed. And as the killer is killing him, it is gyrating with its hips on his hips. It is a terrifying sexuality of the worst kind. And again, absolutely deliberate. But it's not consistent. There's one time that the ghoul is an old woman in like a hospital gown, which is very terrifying. There's a time that it's a giant, like a six foot eight man. There's a time that it is a child, a emaciated child, where I believe they like CG'd out its eyes and its mouth. Probably because, and, and again, I don't know. I don't know. But probably because it wasn't as scary as the filmmaker wanted, because there is so little CG in this movie that any CG at all takes you out of the timelessness of the movie and says, oh, oh, this is modern. And, and, and probably... The one that was most upsetting to me was there's a shot where it appears as a naked man. Although he's either in a like a, a dark speedo or he's naked. It, it's hard to say. Male genitalia is iffy as far as what is allowed with an R rating. I can go into it, but you probably know what I'm talking about. Depending on how it is used, that is an instant NC-17. And so it could be that he was naked and it was a digital modesty patch. Anyhow, I would love to talk to the filmmaker. I'd love to sit him down and say, why this? How come this? And I see, I watched it on Netflix, which is how we watched it probably a decade ago. Although 2015 was not a decade ago. But I, I, I wanted there to be a commentary or at least an interview with the filmmaker to find out his feelings and his thoughts and the, the setting and why it doesn't feel like it was made in 2014. The, the main girl has these friends, uh, although apparently one of them is her sister, and they're constantly chatting, they're constantly talking, and it feels more like the way that real people talk instead of 
witty banter that has been written by a screenwriter. And maybe that sounds like I'm criticizing witty banter. I'm not. The way that people talk is often mundane and repetitive, and you cringe when you hear it because there, there's no thought to it. There's no cleverness to it. Anyhow, I guess I'm talking about It Follows instead of talking about the influence It Follows had on me in writing Newfound Fame. The filmmaker came up with a creature, made it up, doesn't give it a name, and then a couple of rules about the creature. And it's interesting how the rules are, are explained. The main character is drugged and then tied up so that the boy, the guy who infected her, can explain what has been done and how she can escape it. And it, it, that to me is so unusual, so interesting, because in 90% of films, you would think of this guy as a rapist, an, an abductor, a, a predator. Yet he's, he's trying to help her, and then later she tracks him down in the narrative, and there's not a confrontation. Her friends don't beat him up. They don't call the police. They don't try to kill him. They sit down and they have a conversation, and he explains more of the rules of this thing. And that is just astounding to me. It should not work. And I wouldn't be surprised if I talked to somebody who saw the movie, like a Julie Hoverson or someone, and they said, no, that was a deal breaker for me. You don't sit down and have a conversation with your attacker. I really, really loved the movie the first time I saw it. And I think I loved it less this second time, but I was watching it in a much more analytical way, trying to understand why and what. And the movie asks a lot of its audience because there are long stretches of quiet and of dread. And we don't have that so much anymore. You'd think that we would in an era where the Blair Witch Project was the most successful independent film of all time. But we live in a jump scare society where uh, you've heard the formula spelled out of, you know, you need a death every 10 pages. You need a scare here. And then they turn a designated number of pages and say, you need a scare here. Not reading the story or anything. It's just a mathematical formula. And so you get the most idiotic jump scares and artless attempts at scaring the audience. I noticed a couple of, of, of times when the cinematography was especially adept. Something that they would do over and over and over again is, is this thing almost never just popped out to scare you. And when it did, it wasn't as effective as when it would slowly stalk toward you. And so there were a couple of shots where the camera was circling and you would see in the distance a figure and then the camera would go off it and go to the other people. And then when the camera came back, 
that figure was closer. And it was exactly what I was talking about with if Newfound Fame had been a movie, the shot that I wanted was the wide shot where some of the people in the audience might have seen the Brown Depths monster, but not everybody did because it didn't play a terrifying note. It didn't fill the frame. It was subtle. It was there. But that's not the focal point. And then you cut to Ernst. You cut back and it's a tighter shot and now you see it. But you still don't want a close-up on it. You want a closer shot so that more people in the audience see it. And then you cut to Ernst going, what, what is that? And then you give it its close-up. But I don't know that I would. I would like to always keep it in the distance. And that's another thing that they did on It Follows is it was almost never a close-up of this thing, ever. Now, of course, if I sat down and watched it again, I could count 10 close-ups, you know. There were a couple of times I noticed this time through where the being was supposed to be her father, a couple of moments when it was the neighbor's mother, and I'm not sure why. Why is it a stranger most of the time? But in this one shot, it's not. And I think it's just disorientation, unpredictability, the whim of the filmmaker. If they had picked a super terrifying looking actor and said, you're going to be this thing every single time, the film would feel different. In some ways, it would be better because you would guarantee that every time it showed up, it would be dreadful. The literal interpretation of that. But, but you would lose the element of, is that it? Or is that just a person? Which you get two or three times. Anyhow, like I said, that was the influence on me. The Brown Depths monster should be horrible looking. And it should always be dripping should always be wet. I, I didn't think of the sound it would make as it's walking, but it could be a really terrifying, disgusting sound. The, the people that always complain about the word moist, I would want them to be really upset by the sound it made. Anyhow, I watched that for you just so you'd have a full length episode today. I nearly went back to episode three and talked about the rules. There are very specific rules you need to follow in order to survive a horror movie. First of all, you can never have sex. Never. It's a sin. But I, I, just very, very briefly, as the filmmaker of It Follows came up with his own boogeyman and his own rules surrounding that boogeyman, I got to do that as well with the creature from the brown depths and the the idea is it wants to be left alone but if you disturb it if you wake it up then it's going to come for you but i had to come up with an out a way to prolong the chase a little ways and so i came up with you it can only get you when you are alone why why can it only get you when you are alone well, because it was once someone who died alone. 
if you want to say that I'm ripping off It Follows, that that's great. If you want to say that I'm ripping off Friday the 13th, I, I, I think I would argue with you. I'm much more ripping off Friday the 13th Part 2. Friday the 13th Part 2, if you recall, was the first of the movies where Jason Voorhees was the killer. And it sought revenge on these teen counselors because they had killed his mother, essentially. Depending on how you looked at it, I mean, she was killing the counselors because they had allowed her child to drown. But when you bring Jason back and say, no, no, he's been living as a wild man, an eight-foot-tall Cro-Magnon in the woods all these years, then it's a little bit harder to justify why she's doing it. But what if you could have your cake and eat it too? That's the brown depths monster. He really did drown. He really did die out there and then come back as something else, as, as a, a strong, powerful, giant Jason Voorhees from the second movie. I don't have anything else to say, I guess, except for that it is fun to come up with your own mythos, with your own rules and your own backstory for something like this. I've done it before, but I feel like this is probably the most extensive one I've done, where I've just created a boogeyman and it's got its own name, it's got its own story, it's got its own theme song. That's fun, huh? So with that, I leave you for sure. I appreciate you listening for a whole episode longer than I ever intended for you to do. If you were entertained by the story, let me know. If you were scared by the story, let me know. If there are parts you think I should expand, let me know. I uh, had the scene where there's a homeless guy and Ernst wants him to show him to the discotheque. And I thought, well, Ernst, you probably have plenty of $20 bills from those people that insisted on giving you 20s for your autograph. And then I remembered I didn't actually write that bit where people just kept insisting on giving him 20s. I think I wrote one person. But it was something that I had considered expanding. And that's been a temptation over and over and over again when I'm doing these things. I write something and then I look at it again later and I find places that I can improve or expand. And then I do the audio and I do that there. And in the editing, I wanted to do it again. These things are never done, except that it was. Thank you again for listening. Thank you if you support me on Patreon. If you'd like to support me on Patreon, go on over www.patreon.com forward slash Rich Outfield and support me. And um, that's it. I will be back with a, a shorter episode next time. I practically guarantee it. The Rich Outcast is produced. Under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license. 
which makes it free to listen to and download. But one cannot claim it or sell it. Or you'll be beset upon by the dread creature from the brown eye, as thoroughly repugnant and malodorous as you can imagine. Not at all bad-smelling is Gino Moretto, who created the logo for the show. Thanks to Kevin MacLeod from the website Incompetech.com, who provides music for podcasters, YouTubers, and amateur embalmists free of charge, also under a Creative Commons license. And special thanks to Chris Kolakowski for the music composed and performed in newfound fame. He deserves better than to be associated with Rish Outfield. Oh, come on. You're doing so well. That's what she said. What? And every time she went to the pet store, the unpleasant pale owner tried to get her to work for him. Complaining about the lazy, irresponsible help he did have. Um, not uneducated. Un uneducated is not a word. Inexpert, amateurish, untrained, unqualified, inexperienced, unskillful. Okay, wh which sounds better? Complaining about the late, complaining about the lazy, uneducated, irresponsible help he did have. Complaining about the lazy, simple-minded, irresponsible help he did have. Complaining about the lazy, unsophisticated, irresponsible help he did have. I'm going to do unsophisticated. Complaining about the lazy, unsophisticated, irresponsible help he did have, which he disclosed to her were his own niece and nephew. What was I going to talk about last night, I thought? There was a moment when I was really spooked. And I was going to go downstairs to get something, and I thought, oh boy, I'm going to go down into the basement, and then my imagination's going to say, what would you do if someone was standing here, blah, blah, blah. It, I'm tired of it. It's been a problem for 40 years. And as I was going down the stairs and anticipating this, I thought, well, at least I'll be able to talk about mm, tomorrow, and it will be be worth it. And I can't remember what the mm was right now, which is embarrassing, huh? Kimono didn't want to be out there, but nuzzled against Rick's leg anyway, like a faithful dog. I wonder if you dog is, is I want to try pooch just for f**k's sake. But nuzzled against Rick's leg anyway, like a faithful pooch. It was nearly strong enough to knock him over now. It was nearly strong enough to knock him over though now. It was nearly strong enough to knock him over now, though. Its, its neck thicker at the base than all but his thigh. It was nearly strong enough now. It was nearly strong enough to knock him over. It was nearly strong enough now to knock him over, though. It was nearly strong enough now to knock him over, though. Its neck thicker at the base than all. It was nearly strong enough to knock him over. <laughs> it was nearly strong enough now to knock him over its neck thicker at the base than all but his thigh. Its neck thicker at the base than all but Rick's thigh. <laughs>